bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. So last year I was following the saga of the coyote situation in Vancouver in Stanley Park and all the people that were being attacked and bitten. So between December of 2020 and August of 2021, there were 45 people uh, attacked and bitten by coyotes in Stanley Park, including some small children. So in September, there was a controversial uh, action taken. They closed the park down and they did a lethal removal of 11 coyotes. So after that was done in September, there was an incident of one coyote in October had chased a cyclist. But in the four months or so since um, that lethal removal of 11 coyotes there's been no reported attacks of coyotes in stanley park however there's still reports of people feeding the coyotes in stanley park so the removal of 11 coyotes uh, is probably not the end of this story i'm sure over the course of the summer uh, people are going to continue feeding the coyotes um, the same thing is going to happen again and probably more coyotes are gonna need to be removed. Uh, It's obviously effective. They probably got the animals that were bold and aggressive. Um, You know, people objected to this. They had a vigil for the coyotes. Um, People protested against it. Uh, They wanna just live peacefully um, with coyotes in Stanley Park. Not a great idea in my opinion, given the diseases that coyotes now have uh, in Alberta. Uh, in northern Alberta, as well as, you know, I think they got off lucky uh, last year, especially with the kids being bitten, uh, that if this continues, uh, you know, it's it's it could lead to a fatality, um, especially of, of a child. So the cost of coexistence is going to be that if people continue to feed these coyotes in Stanley Park, then they're probably going to have to be trapped uh, on a regular basis a couple of times a year. So on the topic of coyotes, uh, in February of this year, on the scientific journal Biological Conservation, there was a new paper published from some scientists in British Columbia from UBC. And they were looking at coyotes and wolverines and the competition between these two. So normally coyotes and wolverines live in separate habitats. Coyotes tend to do very well um, and have very dense populations that are tied closely to human altered landscape. Uh, Wolverines tend to avoid humans. They tend to avoid disturbed landscapes and they try to be more in the wilderness areas and the the high alpine and montane forests. But with development uh, into the Rocky Mountains, the study was kind of mostly done in the Rocky Mountains in Alberta area, uh, with roads and cut lines and seismic lines and stuff for exploration and oil and gas and forestry and everything back into the wilderness areas. What they've been finding is that the coyotes have been moving 
back into the habitats where the wolverines <clears throat> uh, normally lived without uh, coyotes being around. And the scientists kind of concluded that they think that the coyotes are having an impact on wolverine populations, uh, not because they're fighting or attacking or killing the wolverines. It's just that the coyotes are more numerous and that they're literally out-competing wolverines for food resources in the area because they're now uh, living together in areas where there's a lot of linear features like roads and cut lines into the backcountry. The wolverines are still trying to make a living back there, but the coyotes have moved into what was traditionally wolverine habitat. So uh, wolverines are a species of conservation concern in Canada and there's not a lot of good population surveys or data on wolverines. Um, so this is a bit of a concern I guess for conservation scientists that again sort of cumulative impacts uh, on the landscape, especially in wilderness areas, are leading to these um, conflicts between species out there that normally didn't exist. And we're seeing it with wolverines and coyotes. Again, another study um, on wolves and caribou was recently published in the scientific journal called Ecology. And again, it was some scientists from University of British Columbia Okanagan campus in Kelowna. And they were looking at data uh, of wolves and their use of linear features, which are roads and cut lines, seismic lines, uh, across 500,000 square kilometers that span three, pro three of the Western provinces. And I've worked up there in that area in oil and gas and the seismic lines that are built in the boreal force of northern BC and northern Alberta uh, from the air, uh, it's a shocking scene. I mean, there's seismic lines that are crisscrossing each other on every angle and diagonal and you can literally see seismic lines that are just perfectly straight and you can kind of watch them go over the curve of the earth it's just absolutely the landscape is just sliced to ribbons up there and so what it's done is it's created this grid work over the boreal forest and of course this is where the woodland caribou the endangered woodland caribou live and now they've got all of these these crisscrossed seismic lines everywhere and they're suffering from high levels of wolf mortality uh, now which people are trying to curtail because uh, they're trying to recover these endangered caribou so people had always said well it, it's they, they the wolves use the seismic lines and they get out on them and then they can see because they're perfectly straight when you're in the air they, they can see and they can see them uh, moose and they can see the caribou and that makes their hunting more effective. Well, when you actually get on the ground, that's not actually the case. You get on one of these straight seismic lines, yeah, it's straight when you're in a helicopter looking at it, f you know, from above, but you get down on the ground, uh, get down on all fours like a wolf, uh, and the, the ground's humpy bumpy and rolly and there's some brush and stuff on it and you can't see much more than 20 or 30 yards in front of you in a lot of places. However, what the wolves are doing is they can travel more efficiently 
meaning faster, using these seismic lines. And because they're like a grid work system, they can travel these things and look for where moose and caribou have crossed the seismic lines. And then they use like a, a, a grid search type pattern where they can say, okay, a caribou is crossed here and they go up and uh, catch the next cut line. And well, the caribou didn't leave and come down the other side and the caribou didn't leave and there the wolves would be like aha so it's somewhere in this quadrant uh, and then the wolf pack would go in and search the quadrant find the caribou the moose and, and kill it so their efficiency the rate at which wolves can kill the caribou uh, and moose is much more efficient because they're using these grid works so one of the things that scientists have been looking at doing is restoring these old seismic lines and like roughing them up and dropping trees on them and making them all difficult for the wolves to travel along them efficiently. And so this study that was just published in Ecology, what they looked at or what they discovered was that when you are in habitat where there's a high density of these seismic lines and roads, the home range of wolf packs actually shrinks. And so wolves actually need less space, have smaller home ranges when there's a lot of these linear features crisscrossing the landscape. So that also means that more wolves can then fit into the landscape because you can, wolf packs don't like each other uh, in their home ranges and their territories and they will aggressively fight off other wolf packs. Well, when you shrink a wolf pack's home range down, then you can pack more home ranges into the landscape and increase the density of wolves. And of course, more wolves living in a smaller space, they're having a greater impact on the woodland caribou. And the wolves need smaller or they can make use with smaller home ranges because these seismic lines are making the efficiency of which they can kill prey much higher so they don't need to cover as much land they simply are just using these seismic lines and they're killing faster and so they have no reason to need big home ranges and search around for play, prey so what these scientists found was that when it comes to restoring roads, throwing trees down and debris and slash and roughing them all up, uh, slows the wolves down uh, a little bit. However, if you're restoring these seismic lines in habitats that they call, that have what they call low ecosystem productivity, meaning there were fewer moose living in the ecosystem or in the habitat unit, if you restored the seismic lines in low ecosystem productivity or in areas where the moose density was lower, roughing up and wrecking these seismic lines essentially led to a decrease in wolf density. So in other words, less mortality on endangered caribou. But if you're restoring these seismic lines and roads in areas where the ecosystem is highly productive, more moose, because you know, you probably heard, heard me talk about this before. The dynamic is human altered landscapes make more moose. More moose makes more wolves. 
then the wolves are coming in contact more frequently with the endangered caribou and they're killing them as a byproduct of hunting moose. So in ecosystems where they were highly productive moose ecosystems, when they went in and restored the seismic lines, they found that it reduced the hunting efficiency of the wolves, but it didn't really affect the wolf density at a large scale just because they were still able to find enough moose uh, in these highly productive ecosystems to sustain high densities of wolves. So what all of this has led to is the scientists have been able to provide information that says, hey, when it comes to caribou conservation and you want to get into restoration of habitat, primarily being restoring and getting rid of these old seismic lines, that this research project helps land managers, wildlife managers prioritize where to put the restoration dollars on the ground. And it's in caribou habitat that has less moose, what they call a low ecosystem productivity. The caribou are using it, not as many moose. So when they go in and restore and rough up and wreck the seismic lines, it's actually leading to a decrease in wolf density. Hope that makes sense, but it's pretty cool. It's uh, science helping with conservation and on the ground work. So on the topic of wolves, uh, in British Columbia, uh, between September and November of last fall, uh, the province of BC put out a survey and they wanted to know what people's thoughts were on wolf management killing wolves in the caribou recovery zones in northern BC. So 15,000 people in BC responded to that survey and 59% of those respondents were opposed to culling wolves as a way to protect vulnerable caribou populations. So almost 60% of the respondents said they wanted to see the wolf cull stop. Well, the government went ahead and said they're going to extend the wolf control measures, aerial gunning of wolves, for five more years. So that's caused a bit of controversy, uh, of course. Uh, I can understand that if you participated in the survey uh, and wanted, uh, were opposed to uh, wolf management in the caribou recovery areas, Here's a process where overwhelmingly the majority of participants said no. The government still went ahead and implemented another five years of wolf control. So I would kind of say it would be fair for people to say, well, what was the point of the survey? It's almost like the government had made up its mind prior to putting out the survey. So... I support the wolf management in the caribou recovery zones. Um, the science is there showing that it's helping with endangered herds, the recovery of endangered herds. There's a direct correlation between reducing wolf density and seeing an increase in endangered caribou populations. But I can see this creating mistrust in public processes because 60% of the people were basically ignored. Uh, overwhelmingly. So what's the rules when it comes to surveys, asking the public what they thinks, think in wildlife management? What are the rules? Like what percentage 
obviously 60%. The government can still make up its mind. Uh, what happens if it was 80%, 90%? So I don't know. It's, uh, it's kind of a bit of a fuzzy area in these public surveys for wildlife management. Uh, if you're not going to really listen to the public, I guess, um, and go with popular um, opinion, I guess, like they did with the grizzly bear hunt, uh, and then why even have them? So there was a paper published last fall um, that's, that also pointed out that British Columbia has been accelerating the logging of caribou habitat in the province, endangered caribou habitat. Um, some papers were published that were saying um, the wolf cull wasn't helping with endangered caribou, um, but it was sort of refuted. I guess if you wanted to believe it, you believed that paper. Uh, if you dug into the details, um, other scientists had refuted some of that. Uh, the claims that the wolf call wasn't helping the caribou. But I found an interesting uh, post on Twitter, and it's by Dr. Jason Fisher from the University of Victoria. He does do some wolf caribou research uh, in Alberta and BC. And this was kind of a thread that was in response to the results of this public opinion poll um, being released and the government saying that it's going to continue with the wolf call for five more years. So Dr. Fisher said this, this statement is true. No amount of killing wolves is going to save caribou if they don't have habitat. But the converse is also true. No amount of habitat protection will save caribou if they've already been extirpated. My interpretation there is he was saying, you got to stay on top of these wolves because if you back off and they wipe out the caribou, then all of these advocacy for more habitat protection, which is key, is not going to mean anything if the caribou are gone before you get back to a healthy landscape with all the proper habitat. So staying in northern BC, um, in the northeastern region, there is a controversial announcement uh, came out last week by the BC government, and they said that they had tentatively reached a deal in negotiations with the First Nations that make up what's called Treaty 8 Nations. So it's part of the federal Treaty 8 it covers First Nations in northern BC and um, northern Alberta. And the decision looks like what's coming down the pipe is a reduction in resident hunters in Region 7B in northeastern BC. And it looks like they've tentatively reached an agreement that they're going to close all caribou hunting in northeastern BC and reduce resident hunters moose harvest by up to 50%. So what little is known about this, what I am learning from this is this negotiation or this offer 
to the First Nations of Treaty 8 to reduce resident hunters in their territories has to do with the Yehi decision. And last year, the Supreme Court of BC and Judge Yehi brought down a decision that came as a result of a lawsuit that was filed by the Blueberry River First Nation against the government of BC, claiming that the, that the ongoing industrial resource extraction impacts to the land in the Blueberry River First Nations territory resulted in cumulative effects, cumulative impacts to the land. So just industry, forestry, oil and gas, mining, road development, everything layered on top, little bit by little bit, has created this landscape that's so impacted by all of these projects when you add them up, has resulted in members of the Blueberry River First Nation in having a tougher time finding game to hunt. The decision from Judge Yehi said that Section 35 of the Constitution of Canada guarantees that First Nations in Canada have a right to hunt, a constitutional right to hunt um, in their traditional territories. However, the Yehi decision, and I'm kind of like interpreting here, basically said in order to, to have that right to hunt, there has to be animals on the landscape to hunt. And the government of BC, through these cumulative impacts from layer upon layer upon layer of resource extraction development, has resulted in a landscape where the First Nations hunters have a tougher time finding animals. And so the judge basically said that the government has screwed up in resulting uh, in causing high impacts to the landscape is resulted in impacts to First Nations rights, the rights to hunt that have not been mitigated. So since the Yehi decision, um, the government of BC has been trying to figure out how it's going to mitigate um, or repair the damages to First Nations rights um, through resource extraction. So I'm surmising that the government has been talking with the First Nations in the Treaty 8 area and saying if we were to give you more of the resident hunter allocation, is that going to help as a step towards mitigating the impacts of resource development on the landscape? And if they've reached a tentative agreement with the nations on this, I assume that they're saying yes, that would potentially be a start um, to helping with our loss of hunting rights because of resource extraction impacts. So in British Columbia's wildlife management plan for the province, the plan outlines the priorities for wildlife in the province of British Columbia. The first and foremost priority is for the conservation of wildlife. The second priority is to ensure that there's sustainable and adequate populations for First Nations to exercise their constitutional rights to hunt. Then there's an allocation for resident hunters and an allocation 
for non-resident hunters. So this appears to, to be uh, one of the first times that I can recall in British Columbia that the government is making a decision that they're putting that priority of First Nations rights to hunt over resident hunter allocation of caribou and moose in an area where First Nations rights, hunting rights, have been impacted. Part of the controversy that's happening, of course, this is a controversial um, decision. It's not really a decision. It's an announcement that, you know, may get closed out before the hunting season uh, this coming summer is the resident hunters are being left out of this conversation. Uh, I don't think uh, I know any hunters that would object um, in a conservation concern uh, putting wildlife first. Hunters are always advocating that and all the hunters I know clearly stand behind First Nations rights to hunt and in a situation where maybe there isn't enough to go around and the priority is for First Nations and their rights, um, then I think maybe resident hunters could understand in having to give up some of their allocation. But I suspect hunters would want to be at the table. Uh, organizations like BC Wildlife Federation, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers would want to be at the table um, to hear these conversations, to hear the rationales behind it, to you know, be be part of the different options um, or potential solutions that could be put out to to solve the impacts um, to First Nations hunting rights that have not been mitigated. But uh, it sounds like that you know key or, key organizations like the BC Wildlife Federation were left out of this conversation and just sort of heard about it like we all did on the news. So, anyways, it's um, I'm kind of you know, reading into this story a lot, uh, using what I do know um, from a lot of different uh, sources and understandings of things to try to, you know, be formulating a picture of what's going on. Could be could be wrong, could be misreading what's going on. Anyways, uh, as I learn more, I will keep you up to date on what's going on with the potential closure of caribou hunting and a reduction of moose hunting for resident hunters in northeastern BC in 2022. Uh, starting early in the new year, uh, over in the town of Truro, Nova Scotia, um, there were four provincially certified crossbow hunters that were authorized to start a deer hunt in the community of Truro. And they are authorized to kill 20 female deer. Their urban deer population was getting out of control in the town of Truro. And so they decided to actually have an authorized hunt and certified crossbow hunters to hunt in the town. I think this is kind of cool. They also, the mayor of Truro said the number one reason why the urban deer are a problem today, they said, is in many respects, it's that people are feeding the deer. So they need to knock back the deer population because they also cause other problems because people are feeding the deer. But what's going to happen at the end of this hunt is the deer are going to feed people. So the deer that are harvested, the 20 does, um, the hunt organizers and participants in the hunt are partnering, partnering with 
feed Nova Scotia and they're going to donate the harvested deer meat to the local food banks. It was a controversial decision, as you can probably gather, um, just like, you know, the coyote call in Stanley Park and, and deer, urban deer management programs across the country, they're controversial. Um, so they had a they had a community of Truro had a vote on it. Fifty three percent of those who voted said they were in favor of the deer call. So that's kind of interesting. In St. John's, Newfoundland, scientists earlier this year, uh, early in the new year, had detected an outbreak of the avian bird flu, H1N1 virus, uh, in some farmed birds. And as part of the monitoring program of wild birds, because uh, it can spread, uh, and reducing the risk of people coming in contact with wild birds that could have it or, or the, the uh, avian uh, bird flu getting into the wild uh, birds, they brought on a prohibition in St. John's on the feeding of urban ducks. So again, this was very controversial, an announcement that was made in January to prohibit people from feeding the urban ducks. Um, duck lovers uh, came out of the woodwork and said, this is bad. Um, the ducks, uh, if you just stop feeding them, they need this food source in the middle of the winter time. If you stop feeding them now, um, that's not going to be good because the ducks are you know, relying on people coming down and feeding them. So that was uh, uh, caused a bit of controversy in St. John's. So all I can say is feeding wildlife in an urban environment never leads to anything good. Wildlife always lose. So maybe the folks in St. John's, Newfoundland need to look to Truro, Nova Scotia as a model of what to do with urban wildlife to keep them warm during the winter. I covered this story uh, late late last year um, about declining caribou herds in Quebec and the government announcing that it was going to consider um, capturing the remaining animals in a couple of very beleaguered caribou herds in Quebec and putting them into uh, fenced enclosure areas as a uh, as an effort to uh, keep them from going extinct. Well, early this year, the Quebec government uh, said it's going to move forward with that plan to capture and contain uh, caribou from two isolated herds uh, to keep them from going uh, extinct. So caribou are going to be taken. Um, I assume it's the whole entire herd that's going to be taken from the um, Gaspésie region of Quebec and Charlevoix region. So it's the Gaspésie and Charlevoix herds that are going to be captured and moved into enclosures. So the entire Charlevoix herd has got less than 20 animals in it um, and they're going to capture those and basically keep them indefinitely in uh, enclosures kind of like a zoo. If you want to go see them, that's where they're going to be. Um, where the Gaspise herd, 
the plan is to capture just pregnant females, rear them in the maternal pens, and then release the cows and their fawns after they're a few months old in the springtime. So the province has also penned um, the herd from the Val, the Valdor herd from uh, Quebec. And that was a couple of years ago and it was just down to seven animals and they penned them uh, and they plan to uh, increase the size of that pen uh, for the Valdor uh, population. So conservationists have been criticizing the Quebec government for doing this because they're not doing anything for protecting the caribou's old growth habitat. So there's still logging, there's still development going on in caribou habitat. They're simply rounding up the remaining caribou from these um, three beleaguered herds, putting them into pens, and they're being criticized for that, for not doing anything to protect caribou habitat along with rearing and trying to increase the population of these herds in the penned areas. So, uh, you know, maybe they can rebuild the herds up without protecting the habitat um, to be releasing increasing numbers of caribou back into the wild if the old growth forest isn't there. It's all going to be an effort for naught, and we will see those three populations of caribou in Quebec probably disappear. Jumping back over to British Columbia on the Fraser River. Back in July of 2019, there was, uh, or in 2019, there was an emergency session of COSEWIC, which is the Council of Scientists that look at the status of endangered wildlife in Canada. And they make recommendations to the federal government about listing species under the Federal Species at Risk Act, so they get protection. So in 2019, the emergency session was held and a recommendation was made to the federal government that the Fraser River steelhead runs, particularly the Thompson River and Chilcotin River steelhead populations, their numbers were so low that the recommendation was made um, to the federal government that they should be protected under the Federal Species at Risk Act. At the time, uh, under our federal uh, Species at Risk legislation, Sarah, um, the Minister of Environment has 90 days to make a decision on a recommendation from the scientists on the Kosiwit Council. And I think it was like a year later that the federal government made the announcement that it was not going to be listing the Fraser River steelhead populations, the interior Fraser River steelhead populations under the species at risk legislation. So they were not going to give them federal protection. So since then, the BC Wildlife Federation had been pouring through hundreds of pages of internal government documents that had obtained from a Freedom of Information request or several uh, Freedom of Information requests. And they discovered that uh, last, last year, the, the BC Wildlife Federation had discovered that Federal Department of Fisheries and Oceans had altered a scientific report 
on this threat to the Thompson and Chilcotin steelhead populations, they had altered it so when the federal ministers reviewed the report, the DFO report, they came to the conclusion that the Thompson and Chilcotin steelhead did not need protection under the Species at Risk Act. So that was a super controversial thing that the BC Wildlife Federation had dug into and found out that there had been some tampering uh, of that scientific report, which led to a the wrong decision being made for the Fraser River steelhead. So just recently, um, some numbers have been published. There's only 68 um, fish estimated to be left in the Thompson River steelhead population and 32 steelhead left in the Chilcotin Run. So over a dozen uh, environmental and fisheries groups here in British Columbia have penned a paper to the federal government urging them to protect these two steelhead populations under Canada's endangered species legislation. So what that would mean is some potential significant losses or curtailment of the commercial fishery on the Fraser River because once the steelhead are protected under SARA, it would be a federal offense to kill one of these endangered steelhead. And they know that these steelhead are being regularly caught and killed in some of the commercial fisheries, especially the timing of, I think it's the chum, uh, and the steelhead actually run together and then there's a chum opening so they know they're catching some of the steelhead, these endangered steelhead. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what the federal government's reaction is to this group of uh, concerned fishery conservationists uh, on enlisting, uh, reconsidering listing um, the interior Fraser River steelhead populations as endangered. With all the shit that's going on in the country right now with COVID and transport freedom convoys and all that kind of stuff, man, I just feel so bad for the steelhead and the conservationists that are out there fighting for the remaining number of fish, less than 100 of them in two runs. I just don't know if they're going to get the attention and the protection that they need. So on the topic of fishing... So just recently, a judge uh, brought down a lifetime fishing ban on a fellow that was convicted of numerous fishing offenses, um, a fellow named Scott Stanley Matthew Steer was caught by DFO enforcement officers illegally fishing um, on the Pacific coast. And so the judge came down um, with a lifetime ban in the Pacific region of Canada, uh, fishing ban. Also, uh, the judge brought down these additional, um, I guess, penalties on this fella. And there is a prohibition from being aboard a fishing vessel a six-month-in-jail term, 75 hours of community work, and three years 
probation, which include 12 months under a curfew, a ban against purchasing or selling a fishing vessel, and the forfeiture of his $50,000 aluminum fishing boat. And this was all because of illegal crab poaching. So some pretty stiff penalties. That's awesome to see. I think a lot of people will support that. My only question is, if you had been illegally poaching crabs at this level to get that amount of penalties leveled against you by a judge, why do the penalties only apply to the Pacific region of Canada? For me, common sense would say there should be a prohibition in any tidal waters in Canada. Another bizarre story here early in the new year of, it goes back a few years. So there was two fellas um, were in court, I think last week in Alberta under charges uh, by Parks Canada. So these two fellas, um, Greg Ovens, is from Canal Flats, British Columbia, not too far from where I live, and Zachary Fowler uh, are both facing multiple charges under, the, under Canada's National Park Act. So both these men were contestants on the History Channel TV show Alone. And they were filming episodes for the Alone series. Um, it was kind of like one of those competition things, Survive in the Wild type shows. Haven't seen it or anything, but uh, that's what it was about. And they, Parks Canada, uh, said that they had laid six charges against Ovens and seven charges against this other fellow Fowler. And the charges include the illegal catch and retention of fish, uh, other fishing offenses, hunting, discharging a firearm, illegal fires, damaging and destroying natural objects, and the unpermitted use of a drone in a national park. So they're hunting and fishing in a national park in order to film the shows for this History Channel's TV show. It's also uh, to my understanding that um, the one fellow, Greg Ovens, uh, he runs uh, a sort of like one of those survival, survivalist bushcraft type um, businesses, uh, has a YouTube channel. And the other fellow is um, the filmmaker uh, for, for the History Channel show. So I'm um, to understand that uh, Mr. Ovens, the BC resident, uh, has also been charged um, by the Conservation Officer Service for wildlife and fisheries infractions on Crown Provincial land in BC. The other charges are federal parks and is currently, my understanding, has had his hunting license suspended. So somebody recently wrote me about this story asking me if I had seen it. Um, and they also pointed out to me that this fellow's Mr. Ovens YouTube channel, uh, his Bushcraft YouTube channel, is still on YouTube, uh, which he is wondering if some of these uh, infractions, uh, both provincially and federally, 
were part of anything that was on the YouTube channel and was wondering why YouTube would still allow those episodes to be up and generating advertising revenue from those. So I don't know if it's true or not, but it does actually raise a really good question about hunting and fishing activities that are filmed on a YouTube channel uh, that go onto a YouTube channel that are generating revenue for YouTube if any of those films have led to convictions under any jurisdictions, wildlife or environmental laws, why are they still up? I would probably say because YouTube probably doesn't know about it. So if you suspect or you know for sure um, that there is a connection between what you see on YouTube and something that led to criminal charges, uh, wildlife charges, write YouTube, let them know and ask them for the episodes to be taken down. It's kind of interesting because I've talked about this on other episodes, but YouTube came out with a policy last year that basically shut down people that were in the business of running hunting TV channels on YouTube because they didn't like to show animals being killed. Uh, one of the shows that was locked by YouTube was Trapper's Inc. Um, the Melons, husband and wife couple from Northern Alberta that run a YouTube channel uh, and the Trapper's Inc. TV series showing you life on a trap line, teaching you about fur bears and trapping and managing uh, fur bears on the landscape and stuff. Uh, YouTube didn't like them and they figured they fell under the, their new policy and so they locked their YouTube channel. You can still see Trapper Inc. episodes on the YouTube channel. YouTube's still making money off of it. But uh, um, uh, Rich and Sandy Mellon from Trapper's Inc. have been locked out. They can't get any of the ad revenue. They can't do anything with their with their um, their episodes. They've moved on to a private uh, private pay for view channel now. But uh, I just thought it was kind of interesting that that happened to the Melons with Trappers Inc. But if if it's true um, and these charges go through uh, on Mr. Ovens, what's YouTube going to do with that channel? So. Go on to YouTube, look it up. Uh, I just did a search on Greg Ovens on YouTube and came up with uh, his bushcraft site. Um, looks pretty knowledgeable, some interesting stuff. I saw a few things and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. But I don't know, take a look for yourself. See what you can find out by sleuthing and digging into this and the charges that have been laid and if there's anything that you think is a concern or violated YouTube's uh, policy, right YouTube. So this earlier this winter, an Anuk hunter uh, from Nunavut went out hunting and by himself and got trapped um, by a blizzard for five days in the Arctic and almost died. He, when he was rescued, uh, taken to the hospital, he had severe frostbite and he had to have both of his hands amputated. But he said uh, he feels that his traditional Anuk clothing, 
uh, the caribou skins, seal skins, basically saved his life. I think when I first read the story, he was trying to repair his snowmobile and the winds of the blizzard were so severe that when he took his gloves off to do something on the snowmobile like we do to take spark plugs out, the wind took his gloves away, which is why he ended up with severe frostbite on, on his hands and, and lost his hands. But it was his traditional clothing that basically saved his life um, in this Arctic blizzard. So uh, the fellow's name is Ernie um, Etak. And he said, even though he's lost both of his hands, he's getting prosthetics. And he said, once he gets those, he's going to go back out and go hunting so that he can bring food home for his community. So it's an interesting two stories here of people out doing stuff on the land and hunting and fishing. Um, Ernie was an honorable hunter, smart fella, had the right clothing on, was doing the right thing, saved his life. And he's so dedicated to hunting and getting food for his community that he's going to go back out with prosthetic hands and do everything that he can to bring home uh, food home for his friends and neighbors. So when it comes to hunting, there's a right way and a wrong way. I think Ernie was doing things the right way. Honorable hunter. So be like Ernie. So speaking of traditional fur clothing, um, so the last couple of years with COVID, um, the fur industry in Canada, uh, where trappers, you know, sell their furs in the auctions, uh, really took a hit. Normally, what happens is there are big auctions in Ontario where fur buyers from all over the world come into these big auctions and that's where all the trappers furs from across Canada that have been shipped in all go up for auction and the buyers go through and they check the various lots and they they grade the furs and they get all their um, their notes and everything and then they bid competitively in these big auctions well they weren't able to do that during COVID uh, in the middle of COVID or early in COVID in 20, 2019, one of the largest um, fur auctions, the North American Fur Auction, um, uh, NAFA, filed for bankruptcy. And so basically in Canada, there's one company, Fur Harvesters Incorporated, in North Bay, Ontario, is basically the main player in the Canadian fur industry. So they're even shut down over the last couple of years because of the pandemic. These um, buyers could not travel into Canada for the fur auctions. So if everything continues to go well, um, it's possible that the March fur auction um, by Fur Harvesters Inc. Uh, could be back to having in-person buyers um, and not doing it online. So trappers are hoping that if that happens, that you'll see an increase in prices because the fur buyers will actually be there and be able to verify the furs that they're bidding on um, in, in person. So over the last couple of years, in fact, last year, um, the company Canada Goose um, announced that it was going to stop using fur trim on its uh, big high-end parkas 
uh, by the end of 2022, which was a big hit to uh, the coyote fur market. And then following suit, some other major um, clothing manufacturers in the world, Versace, uh, Michael Kors, and Gucci have all decided to stop using fur. Um, and companies like Nike and The Gap are looking to make their products more sustainable to cater to eco-conscious conscious shoppers. That's kind of crazy, in my opinion. There's nothing more eco-conscious and sustainable than using natural fur instead of synthetic chemical petroleum product-based uh, furs and fabrics and stuff on all this clothing. So uh, those are some things that kind of like hit prices. Um, the fur market uh, on kind of layered on top of the COVID situation of the the auctions not being able to be held in person. So like I said, trappers have got their fingers crossed this year that if there's an in-person auction held in North Bay, Ontario this year and the buyers can come into Canada, that um, prices will be high and maybe offset some of the uh, impacts of these uh, announcements by these big clothing manufacturers to be moving away from fur. Speaking of Canada geese, so researchers at Vancouver Island University uh, in Nanaimo have been working on a project where they've been tagging Canada geese and tracking through public reports where these geese are going. So we always think about the big epic migrations that migratory birds make, um, you know, each, each fall, you know, birds going as far as into South American stuff um, for the winters and then coming back to the Canadian Arctic. But what, what they found was with these Canada geese is that most of them we're just staying on Vancouver Island or going over uh, onto the lower mainland. And about 15% of them were only going as far as Washington State and Oregon. So these Canada geese didn't see the need to go all the way down to Baja, uh, like a lot of the ducks do. But the interesting thing was, is one goose that was, that was um, tagged last October showed up 3,000 kilometers from Vancouver Island in Chicago. And they have no idea why or how it got from Vancouver Island to Chicago, but this goose went on a 3,000 kilometer kind of cross the continent type migration um, to go check out the Windy City. So this goose, unlike the clothing company Canada Goose, um, the real goose, probably knows what it's doing. Doctors have recently embraced a program here in Canada where the doctors and other licensed healthcare professionals um, across four provinces. Uh, BC, Ontario, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba can now prescribe a free pass to patients to our national parks. And so the pass prescription is Canada's first national nature prescription program. 
and it was started by the BC Parks Foundation in uh, the fall of 2020, and it was to help healthcare professionals develop a nature prescription that encouraged patients to spend time in the outdoors as a way to manage anxiety and improve mental and physical health. I think this is a prescription that hunters and fisher fisher persons and trappers have known about for generations. It's uh, good for you to be out there doing doing these things on the land. So, uh, anyways, newly discovered thing in the medical field: being out in nature's good for your health. And there's plans to expand this past prescription nature prescription program to every province and territory in Canada. So I'm personally working with doctors on a new program to be able to prescribe a prescription for full-time hunting, fishing, and trapping as a way to connect with nature and stay healthy and physical health and mental health. So I'm, I'm, I'm working on them to, so doctors can prescribe full-time hunting, fishing, and trapping um, uh, and get a prescription for that. So if this goes through, uh, what I'm going to be looking for from my doctor is for an annual prescription with unlimited refills. All right, everybody, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada. We'll see you in the next episode.